this morning as we begin and kick off Christmas, we're going to go to the book of Luke. Anybody want to guess what chapter? Three. Now I go on Luke 2, go on Luke 3. Um, we are going to start the Christmas story this morning, and we are going to begin our countdown to Christmas by talking about what I think is something that's important for all of us. Um, we're going to talk about snowfall and starlight. Snowfall and starlight, that's the title of our passage this morning. And we're going to take a few minutes and start getting ready for what I hope is going to be a great Christmas celebration for you. I know we say that every year, and, and hopefully it is, and hopefully you do that. But we're going to look specifically today at Luke chapter 3, and we're going to highlight verses 7 through 16. I'm not going to read you the passage. We're going to jump into it in a couple of spots, because we're going to begin with what is a, an odd character to talk about at Christmas. John the Baptist. Most of us, when we set up our Christmas nativity sets, or you've seen Christmas pageants, um, they contain pretty much the same thing. Got to have Mary. She's essential. If you've got anybody that's had a child that are willing to give up that child and let you throw it in the hay, um, you have a baby Jesus. Now, if you can't find anybody that's had a child recently that wants to give up that child for the sake of entertainment for the glory of God, then you throw in a baby doll. Um, there also then usually is Joseph, whose job is to stand there and ponder. Usually we round up some shepherds because their, their outfits are easier. They just put on old bathrobes and put a towel around their head, and they're shepherds. And then we put the wise men in, uh, not because wise men showed up at the nativity, of course, but because it lets us sell um, Christmas nativity sets and with more pieces, and it costs more money. And so that's how we do that. But never, ever in the midst of the animals and the sheep and the cows and the camels do you find a little bitty figure of a little boy, John the Baptist, peeking around the corner of the stable saying, Hey there, Jesus, I'm your cousin John. <laughs> Nowhere. Nowhere. And yet, how can you tell the Christmas story without looking at John the Baptist? See, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. We know that. We, if you're familiar at all with it, you understand that John was born just a little bit before Jesus, and, and he came and he was the forerunner of the Messiah. I don't know about you, how you spend Christmas. I remember as a kid, uh, Christmases were always special times, usually right after Thanksgiving. We would put up the Christmas tree in the house, and so... Um, I remember as a child thinking, and, and some of you have been around long enough to know you've heard me tell this story before. I grew up in an era, well, I'm a child of the 60s, so when we put up our Christmas tree, it was a silver tree. It was a silver tree with the metallic palm frond things on the end of it, and, 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 it, and you couldn't put lights on it. <laughs> the lights would melt the tree. So, so it had these color wheels, and you put these color wheels on it, and the wheel would change, and so it would look very beautiful on the tree. And I grew up thinking that's what the Christmas tree looked like. It was a traumatic event in my life when that tree got so old we had to get rid of it. And we put in a green tree, like the rest of you people. <laughs> and it wasn't really Christmas without that tree. I, to this day, I still have that tree, by the way. It doesn't look quite so silver anymore. Uh, but it is in the original packaging somewhere. Um, and I still don't put lights on it because it would melt it. But, um, but remember, I remember as a kid, man, Christmas was an exciting time. That transition to get from Thanksgiving to Christmas. I was a kid, like, let's get past Thanksgiving. 
let's get on with Christmas. Now, again, I'm older and wiser now, and so I still, let's get past Thanksgiving and get on to Christmas. Nothing's changed, but, but I, I, do ta- I do pause, and I, I'm thankful now, and I take that little pause before we get into the Christmas season. But I can remember Christmas Eve's, man, the longest night of the year. Christmas, by the way, is 22 days away. And if you're a kid, below the age of 25, (laughs) these are an agonizing 22 days because you just can't wait for it to get here. But Christmas Eve's brutal. Um, We used to go uh, to my grandparents' house, and we'd sit with all my cousins, and we'd open gifts and exchange gifts. It was a great family time. Looking back on it, it was a super family time. But I remember as kids, as cousins, we would sit back there just saying, let's get on home, let's get home, let's get home, because, you know, We've got to get home. There's Christmas presents going to be there in the morning. And I was one of those kids, man, if there's a present on the tree when nobody was looking, Mom, I know you didn't hear this, but nobody was looking. And I'm shaking, baking that thing. I want to know what's inside. You know, I want to know what's there. Um, and, and so that, for me, Christmas morning was incredible. If you can imagine, under a green tree, little Jeff on a Christmas morning, waiting and hoping that under the tree was that present that had become um, really in some ways the rage of folks in that era. In 1966, kids used to not have the Internet. And so when you shopped, you used something called a catalog. (laughs) And they used to call them wish books. And you would turn the pages and you would look at things in the wish books. Now, Sears did the wish book that everyone thinks of, but, you know, J.C. Penney's had one, and, and there were always a lot of flyers and catalogs and stuff like that. It's long before the Internet, before Amazon ever came along. Um, and so we would look, and, and somewhere around 66, this advertisement came out. Major Matt Mason and Johnny Astro. I had to have both. But Major Matt Mason was Mattel's Man in Space. If you were a kid in that era, you know what I'm talking about, right, Pete? <laughs> Pete had this. As on Christmas morning when I opened up this present, that's all this. Major Matt Mason, Mattel's Man in Space, still has the cardboard Major Matt Mason in the window. Oh, on this side. Major Matt Mason in the window. I can't find that didn't feel right. Major Matt Mason in the window. And if you open that thing up, Inside, yep, there he is, Major Matt Mason. I got to tell you, Major Matt Mason, he's not quite as wiry as he used to be. He's inside, he's got wires in him. And then his friend, Sergeant Storm. Very awesome. Now, I'd love to tell you that I was smart enough to keep these as a child. I wasn't. I've had to, I've had to collect these later on as I've gotten older, realizing what I had and got thrown away. But these were the, pre- these were the presents that ignited the imagination of a little kid because there's so much cool stuff that went with it. What you don't know is that when this came out, this came out, this, this, these toys were released in the midst of a space race. And so they came out with all sorts of accessories that were designed and patterned after the kind of stuff that they would talk about in magazines that NASA would let out and be seen. And, 
And they would show up, and, and all of a sudden, everyone was thinking about looking toward heavens and going to the stars, and what was it going to be like? And so Major Matt Mason, Sergeant Storm, were the first men on the moon, men in space. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, so you're doing a series on toys, so you can go back and find all the toys from your childhood. And you might be right. But there's a point to all of it. And so when you would look and listen to what was happening in the world and the culture around you for kids, this became moments that ignited their imagination. Matter of fact, the reason it happened is because of commercials like the one you're about to see. Take a look. Meet Major Matt Mason, Mattel's man in space, and the bravest astronaut yet. He lives on the moon. We may all be there soon. And he gets around with a jet. Until Sergeant Storm in his red uniform, Major Matt worked all alone. Now, together, they face the dangers of space and seek to learn the unknown. The machines that they drive seem almost alive as they transport the adventurous pair. The new AstroTrack whips through the black and fireboat even goes where they meet Captain Laser, his space gear ablaze with energy stored from the stars. He's a giant, it's true, but a friendly one who spent his boyhood on Mars. An exciting place, the world of space, as all the astronauts know. This world is swell. It's made by Mattel. With it, how far can you go? Now, Major Matt Mason, I don't know if you caught the line in there. He lives on the moon where we all will soon. And, and you can tell it swells, made by Mattel. All that for a kid was awesome. And, and it came with such cool features. For example, nothing says Christmas like a weapon. And, and, and these toys that came out, I mean, they, they were, they were, I mean, they were you know, state-of-the-art at the time, but, I mean, they ran on batteries, and most kids like me, you know, you would leave batteries in them, and they would, batteries would corrode and be no good. So to be able to find toys that actually worked, Oh, yeah. Um, makes you a rock star, right? And look at this one. And I know this thing spinning inside does something, but I don't know why. But it doesn't matter because it's cool. And see, as long as it's cool, that's what counts. And they're noisy. And for me and for countless other kids, you play with these things and you think, I, I want to be an astronaut. So I want you to know, I, I'm going to admit to you, I, I, I want to be an astronaut. Space race is going on. We're heading to the moon. It's going to be incredible. I want to be an astronaut. The problem, there are a few problems with that. I didn't like science. <laughs> that was a problem. Um... I didn't like the haircuts. That, too, was going to be problematic. And then here's something I didn't know about space. Space is off the ground. Which means to go to space, you have to fly. And the Bible says no. Because the Bible says, lo, I am with you always. And so you, you can't fly, and, and, and so for me, I'm not a guy who likes to fly. So all those things stacked against me, so I gave up my career as an astronaut, and I decided I'd be a sports nut instead and do some things like that. 
but it ignited imagination and it got people, kids, looking toward the heavens with hope of what the future could be. By the 70s, we'd already been to the moon. We walked around, became boring stuff for Americans. We had the attention flies of gnats. And so it became no more, and Major Matt Mason disappeared into the catalogs of history and on my shelves in my office. But learning to look toward the stars and look toward the heavens is not a new thing. As a matter of fact, it has everything to do with Christmas. It has everything to do with John the Baptist. It has everything to do with what we're talking about today. Because what you don't know, or what you may not know, is that for the Jewish people, God had been silent for a long time. And the Jews, in the day of Jesus, when he arrived, um, he arrived into a world where the Jewish people were being oppressed and were under Roman rule. They were living in a world where the philosophy of the day was trying to create gods and philosophies about how the world worked and how it was put together. So the Greco-Roman world, incredibly different and difficult. For the first time in all of human history, there was a road system that connected the civilized world. There was one language, Greek, that was used to communicate with people. And so technology of that day was faster than it had ever been before. And the Jews were not a part of it. They felt like they were oppressed and being left behind. As a matter of fact, they were about broken. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Welcome to the world we live in. And in that day, according to historians, awaiting the Messiah, looking for the arrival of Christmas, had Jews looking toward heaven thinking, has God forgotten us? What's going to happen next? What's he going to do? At a time in human history when the world needed a Messiah and God's chosen people were on the edge of thinking that they were going to disappear into oblivion or they had to be rescued. They needed a Messiah to rescue them and bring about his kingdom on earth. And at that time, in that moment, God steps into time and space. That's cool, isn't it? And John the Baptist has a specific role. As Jesus' cousin, he is the forerunner. And John had a message, and the message was all about expecting the Messiah and looking for the Messiah and then preparing for the Messiah expectation and preparation. It was John who came back and said, it's okay to be looking at the stars because he's coming. And you need to be ready to live your life differently when he gets here. And that's the message that John was saying, which is why he becomes such an important part of the Christmas story. Even though he wasn't at the manger, he was too little. Even though he's not going to be in your manger scene at home. Although you could fix that and insert him in have something to talk about. But today, we're going to go into the book, and we're going to discover some things about John and his life and who he is and what he did. And realize that when we get to verse 15 of the passage we're looking at, so if you have your Bibles open, take a look. It says, the people were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Every preacher that came along and began sharing and talking and sounded a little bit different 
would attract the crowd. And the question was always the same from the Jewish audience. Are you the Messiah? Because they were waiting for one so badly. Let me ask you a question. As you're thinking about Christmas this year, somewhere in your thoughts is in preparation. Is there a sense of expectancy? Were you just excited that we get to celebrate the arrival of the Messiah all over again? I mean, we're 22 days out. Are you excited about the day? I mean, you have to be a little kid to be excited about Christmas. There needs to be a sense of expectancy in your life because what we are doing is we're celebrating the birth of a Savior that changes all of human history. And how are you preparing for his arrival? I mean, have you taken the attitude, well, he's already shown up, I don't need to worry about it. No, 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 no. He showed up for a reason. And it's what John the Baptist was talking about. He was trying to get people ready to understand what was going to happen, what Messiah was supposed to be. And they were eager and they were anxious. I think there's a follower. There needs to be an eagerness and anxiousness about Christmas, just like me as a kid on a Christmas Eve. And all those things that we associate with Christmas, star-filled nights, snowfall, and all those kind of things that put us in that wintry wonderland mindset, all of that really does have the opportunity to enhance what we experience when we do this thing called Christmas. And so hopefully for you, that's happening. There's a Christmas bonus. You've got some fill-in-the-gaps. I know some of you uh, get excited about those kind of things because you have blanks that you can fill in on your worship outlines. And I want you to know, uh, in fairness to the 9 o'clock crowd, we started running behind, and I gypped them. They didn't get all the the fill-in-the-blanks. Most of the people that cared about that have already contacted me. (laughs) And so I've I've gone back, and I've had to clean up a mess on aisle two because we didn't get it all in. And I said, well, I was editing. And they said, well, you left out something I needed to know. And so they have it. Um, But let me give you your first Christmas bonus. If you need to fill in the blanks. If you don't, just put it down. Don't be nervous. We'll wait for those that need to fill it in. But it's simply this. Expectancy is the atmosphere for miracles. Expectancy is the atmosphere for miracles. I am thoroughly, completely convinced that one of the reasons that we don't experience the bigness and the fullness of God is because we just don't expect him to do that much anymore. We just kind of get in routine, we just kind of go through the motions, and we just don't expect him to show up and do do the things that only God can do. Or he's done so much for us that, that we take it for granted. It becomes commonplace. But having that sense of expectancy ramps up how you're going to experience Christmas on any given year, but specifically this year. At a time and a place where much of history looks like it may be repeating itself, I've wondered why is it that we're not as expectant about his second coming as the Jews were about his first coming? Because right now we're living in a day and age in our culture where there's a whole lot that's going on that has a lot of end times feel and vibe to it if you haven't figured that out yet. I mean, I just described the Jewish people of the day. Do you not think that you can go home this afternoon and turn on the news and hear about how the Jewish people of the day in Israel right now are experiencing life? You hear the pundits and the dunderheads talking about it and and waxing eloquent about it, but they never picked up their Bibles and read. Go home and read Psalm 83. That will help you answer the question, is this the end times? And what's going to happen next? And if you don't want to do that, we have it available for you online. 
We taught about it, but go back and look at it. It's a passage that directly talks about what's going on right now, right now today in Israel. And what's going to happen before Jesus returns. But are you excited about that? Are you anticipating that? I mean, I am. I don't want to go on the bus right now, by the way. I mean, this is not a Billy Graham crusade. The buses are not waiting in the parking lot to take you to heaven right now. I'm not asking you to sign up to go today, but I'm saying, wouldn't that be awesome? And for us as followers, there's some things that we need to remember that we need to be doing on an ongoing basis in our lives to be ready to live the fullness of the life that God has called for us. And so we're going to jump into them. Um, the first thing I want you to see, and John is talking about these in his passage. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11. I think that he talks about the fact that there needs to be a blizzard of generosity that happens in our life. What should we do then, the crowd asked. And John answered, the man with two tunics, if the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. John the Baptist is not saying that you need to give away everything and go without. He's not saying that you need to give it all away and, and take it and, and just, you know, tell everybody, you know, I, I, I've given away, I, I, I've sworn a life of poverty. What he is saying is, he goes, keep your eyes open and look for those who have needs and then give them what you have. If you have two tunics, you don't need two tunics. Give one away. If you have food, but you meet somebody that doesn't have food, give them food. It's okay. He basically is laying out a principle, an idea here that says, keep your eyes open, look for those moments, look for what the Spirit is doing, how the Spirit is leading you, and so that you can do and respond to those needs. See, generosity, if you're a follower of Jesus, needs to be blowing through your life right now uh, in a way that it never has before. I watched yesterday, and and again, always amazed at the Christmas store, always amazed at how it works, always amazed at what goes on and, and, I, and, I, and I got to walk the hall yesterday between the rooms and see some things and, and there was a woman that I remember who came out of the one room and I think Robert you were with me or you were close from this lady that came down the hall and she was crying because she thought she was chopped and it was done and she got to find out that she got to shop more and she, she broke down she broke down and wept and I'm a pastor who has compassion and I feel for people and I looked at her and I said woman quit crying you have to shop that's what my pastor's heart told me to do. And she went in, and she had to keep shopping because there was no time. You don't, no, there's no time for crying. There's no crying in Christmas. There's shopping. Shop. And she did. But she was overwhelmed by the generosity of you, of you, and what you did, how you gave. John is reminding people, he goes, you know, you, you've got to understand that when Jesus shows up, He's going to call you to be different. He's going to call you to be something else. And you have to understand that this is a Jewish crowd that's coming to hear Jesus, and the Jews think they've cornered the market on God at this point. Which is why what John is saying to them is so revolutionary. Because they say, well, what should we do? Give away their tunic. Feed those that don't have anything. In other words, he's beginning to lay out for them a no-holes-barred heart shift that's going to cause them to be generous because God's going to come in and ask something different from them than they've done. See, they don't know this yet, but this is the first erasure, if you will, of some of the laws that they've lived under. This is the first moment where they're hearing anybody talk about the fact that, yeah, the rules are getting ready to be rewritten here. And so when he tried to talk about calling to a baptism... 
baptism of repentance. Jews didn't think they needed to be baptized because they, they, they knew God. The only people who got baptized were people who came to Judaism from some other type of faith. So when John's talking to a Jewish crowd, he says, you need to be baptized. They're going, what? Not us. And so for John, he is saying things that are blowing up their world and their expectations about what Messiah is supposed to be and what's going to happen. Uh, serious question. Has Jesus entered your world and kind of blown up your expectations of what Jesus is and who he is and how he works? He's a lot bigger than I thought he was. See, when I was a kid and I came to Christ, I, I knew him, but I didn't know him like I know him now. I can honestly say this. Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year. And more amazing and more amazing and more amazing. And that's, yes, that's good because the older I get, the closer I am to meeting him again. So, I mean, that's good, but um, he just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And in your life, you should have each day that kind of expectancy that's happening and, and, and be willing to be prepared and look for those moments where you open your eyes and you want to be generous. Let me give you a Christmas bonus. It's simply this. A hug is the perfect Christmas gift. You know why? One size fits all and it's easily returned. That's, that's almost sappy, isn't it? Look at the person next to you. Decide if you know them or not. If you know them, hug them. Oh, that's sweet. If you don't know them, they may not want to hug you because, well, you may not have used your deodorant this morning, and I understand that. <laughs> don't want to make it too weird. And then here's the question, and here's where really it, it comes into play. If you hug someone, did they hug you back? Because if not, they were holding out on you, um, and that's bad. Yeah. Nothing like a Christmas hug. Um. The second thing you need to see is not only are we called to being generous, but we also need to have in our lives snowdrifts of integrity. Verse 12 through 14, tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said, teacher, what should we do? Don't collect more than you're required to, he said. Then some soldiers said, well, what should we do? And he said, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, don't let these verses go by too quick because what we're talking about here is living a life of integrity. And for us, our lives need to be decorated by drifts of integrity. Every time you turn around, you ought to be able to look and say, oh, that's, that's, that's integrity in your life. Those snow drifts that pile up on the side and you begin to see them. They, they, you need to be known for your integrity. Because notice who's coming to John. See, he's talking to a Jewish crowd, but who asks the questions? Tax collectors. Tax collectors, well, what should we do? Tax collectors are like, the outcast of the Jewish community. Yet they're coming and they're asking, what, what are we supposed to do? And notice that John doesn't say, quit being a tax collector, you loser. No, he tells them to be a good tax collector. In other words, do your job, do it well, do it fairly, be a good tax collector. But the soldiers come. These are Roman soldiers. Not Jewish soldiers, Roman soldiers. They're listening, and they say, oh, what should we do? And he says, don't stop. He didn't say, don't stop being a soldier. He just said, be a good soldier. Be fair. Don't falsely accuse people. Do your job. Do it well. Do it with integrity. In other words, when people look at your life, it needs to be piles of integrity just all around you. Everywhere you turn, yep, person of integrity, yeah. Because the integrity is found and manifested in the things that you do, not the things you say you believe. If you say you believe it, but you don't live it, eh, 
integrity becomes a problem. Especially in the ways that we deal with other people. And so John is telling them, hey, look, you guys got to learn to be generous. Because he's going to call you to be different. And you're going to need to have integrity. Because that's what he's going to ask you to do. Christopher Montgomery, 19-year-old kid, sweeping up a movie theater. Job, working for a few dollars an hour, cleaning up a theater after movies and, you know, cleaning up, you know, empty popcorn things, picking up bags, stuff like that. Picks up a bag and it's heavy and stick and looks inside. It's loaded with cash. $24,000 worth of cash. Story is mom has his cash from her business, supposed to make a cash deposit at the bank, but it's Christmas break, so she decided to take her kid to a movie in the afternoon and stop by the bank on the way home after the movie. Wanted to spend some time with her daughter on Christmas. Picking up her bags, left that bag on the floor. 19 years old, $24,000 cash in your hand. What do you do? You drop to your knees and say, praise God, it's a miracle. Or you give it back, which is exactly what he did. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. It's integrity. And integrity shows up in the way that we live our lives. And we're called to live that way because it's the right way and it's the best way. If you don't get your priorities in order, if you don't do the things that are important to do, your life becomes a tangled mess. Let me give you another Christmas bonus, simply this. Don't get your tinsel in a tangle. Don't get your tinsel in a tangle. Uh, Living a life of integrity is an act of preparation. you're, You're getting ready. You're doing the things that you need to do. You're doing the things that are right to do. You're just doing the best things. It's good. Third thing I want you to see also not only there need to be snow drifts of integrity but also you need to be snow plowing with consistency in other words you need to be knocking stuff out of the way that gets in your way of being the person you were created to be you ever follow a snow plow down the road see I, 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 I don't like snow I like to visit snow I like to tell snow goodbye <laughs> I love to see it on television as I sit there in a pair of shorts I love the moments when you can visit snow with the knowledge that I don't have to stay here and live in this frozen tundra of obscurity and pain. See, I'm I'm getting amens. People come here all the time from the north because they just love the weather. But I've had the opportunity to drive behind a snowplow. And when snowplow clears off a road, all of a sudden, man, that's, that's a place you want to be. I mean, you want to ride on that road when it's freshly plowed because it gets the stuff out of the way that keeps you from getting where you want to go. Do you understand that when you put garbage in the path of your life that keeps you from getting where you're supposed to be, you're your own worst enemy. And you've got to plow through that stuff and get it out of the way so you can be consistent. When John was teaching. He would come out and he was, of course, he, he, he dressed funky. Uh, he lived in the wilderness. I mean, he was kind of an attraction to himself. I mean, he was just, he was just odd. But the crowds came. See, when crowds come to hear preachers today, 
They come to hear preachers say, this is my Bible. And they smile real big and say, you can be all you were created to be just because you're you. They smile and they grin. And they take up an offering. They sell a book. And people love that. Remember, I told you, these people are asking John, begging John, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? They, they want Christmas, and they don't know that's what they're asking for, but they want Christmas so bad that they're begging John to tell them what to do. And this is how John addresses them. John, verse 7, said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. These are people who are coming out to be baptized. <laughs> you brood of vipers. That is not a term of affection in the first century. <laughs> I just want you to know. You will not make friends if you call people vipers. That way it work. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, he's, he's knocking people off the holy high horse. He's basically saying to them, don't use this idea that we're the kids of Abraham. We're good Jews. We're okay. He basically is looking back at them, and let me paraphrase this. God could zap you in a minute and take this rock and make a better person than you. In other words, you ain't no better than a rock. So quit being a rockhead. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And you got to ask yourself, why did John preach that way? Because a common misconception that we have in the church of America today is that God died on the cross to make you nice. That God died on the cross to make you nice and sweet. That God died on the cross to make you nice and sweet and kind. He did. He died on the cross so you could have life and have it abundant and you could love others. But I got news for you. He also called you to proclaim truth. This is John the Baptist in a world where the Jews are on the brink of extinction. And he's stirring the pot. Why? Because he wants to get their attention because they got to get it right. See, we live in a day and age where if someone says something you don't like and you're offended, you want to cancel them. You want to boycott them. You want to unfriend them. And, and, and we don't want to have anything to do with them. And we want to call them names and make them evil. I, want news, I got news for you. Jesus was never politically correct, and truth is not always going to sound nice. Now, kindness you can get to, right? That's kind of a low bar, right? Most of us can be kind. But truth. Yeah, sometimes truth. People want to hear it. And we're afraid to give truth because we don't want to offend. How many in this room, don't, 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 don't raise your hands. How many in this room have, have not said something to somebody because they don't want to offend them? How, how, how many people see something wacky going on and you're just like, oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want them, don't want them to get mad. And you know what? You know what reason we, don't, we, we say in our head, and our heads get a little wonky at this point. Our head, we say, you know what? If I say that, I might drive them away from God. You know what you just did when you did that, right? You just gave yourself a spiritualized excuse for not doing something. What you're really saying is, I, I don't want them to not like me. 
But, you know, the scary part is that at the end of the day, do you love someone enough to tell them the truth? Because very few people in our culture love people enough to tell them the truth. Because you know why? That can get you hurt or killed. Jesus understood that, by the way. And we live in a day and age where Christmas ought to shake us up a little bit. Christmas ought to raise our expectations. We need to be prepared. We need to be willing to look at Christmas and understand that this changes everything about love and life and what we're supposed to be and who we're called to be. And when we get it right and when we do it right, all of a sudden anything and everything can happen. John said it this way, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you be who you're supposed to be and you're going to produce fruit and it's going to give glory to God and God's going to bless it. You stay obedient. You worry about following him. So John, in essence, saying, I'm not the Messiah, but the one that's coming, he's going to ask you to change everything. He's changing your religious rules. He's going to shake up what you know to be culture. He's going to be revolutionary. I'm sure that there were those conversations where John said, you think I'm something? Wait, you see him. It's not there, but you can ask John when you see him. And John stayed on point, and he stayed on message, and he kept sharing that over and over again. Eventually, it got him killed. None of us want the John the Baptist plan. We want to be a follower, but not a John the Baptist follower, right? We don't want to do that. But the call is still the same. The call is to be faithful because the call is to stand against the culture and a world that sometimes doesn't want to talk about what Christmas is really all about, doesn't really want to understand the importance of what we're celebrating. And yet we ought to be excited and be expecting that this day, this Christmas day is almost, and it's not a bad word, is magical. And what happens at Christmas time is when the creator of the world steps in to our world, and everything changes. In the 60s, when we were looking toward the heavens, there was a target. Every kid who played with astronauts like this, and, and I want to clarify something that's very important. These are not dolls. They are action figures. Lest you walk out the door and said I was playing with dolls as a kid. Every kid played with these action figures knew that we were headed for the moon. And in 1969, we got there. And most of us remember Neil Armstrong bouncing down those steps in that TV studio in Nevada. (laughs) I'm just kidding about that, too. It's not a conspiracy. I think we went to the moon. Um, the studio was in Los Angeles. Anyway, we, uh, we, we, Armstrong bounced down the steps <laughs> and he uttered those words that we know. It was, by Tang, it's good for you, or whatever he said. But what you don't know is that before he went down the steps, another event took place. Buzz Aldrin served as an elder in his church in Texas. Buzz Aldrin, when he was getting permission 
um, to put some things in his goodie bag, his personal bag, he'd ask his pastor, Dean Woodruff, um, for the right symbol that he could take with him for the lunar landing. What he was given by his pastor was a chalice that the church used for the Lord's Supper. Buzz Alden told Mission Control what was coming. They were a little bit worried about it. it was, I remember it's the 60s. You've got people trying to push God all out of the public square and some things like that. And all this goes, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be talking to you guys when I do it. And so when it gets to the moon, before they ever walk out, they have the Lord's Supper. See, Buzz Aldrin, as a follower, wanted to do something to commemorate the fact that they, man had reached into the heavens, and when they got into heaven, they found out that there was something there, and there was still more to discover. See, as a follower, hopefully you've looked to heaven and found that there's a lot to find. You found a place to land in Jesus, but there's a lot more to discover. And zero gravity, or near zero gravity, when he poured the juice into the cup, it curled up over the cup. And there's enough gravity to make liquid stay in the cup on the moon, but it just kind of looked like a tidal wave rolling over and over again in that cup. And he sat there and he broadcast it back. And the world has heard those moments where he read from the book of John, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And as the Lord's Supper was over with, they got on about the business of walking around a place that man had never been before. My prayer for you is that you would look toward the stars this Christmas season with a sense of expectancy like a kid who's going to open toys, uh, with the desire to make sure you don't miss a moment of it. And so we're going to start our Christmas celebration with the Lord's Supper. And you have to understand when we do that, it's not the magical about the Lord's Supper. But it's a way to remember what it is that we can be and who has given us that opportunity. And so once again this morning, we're going to look toward the stars, look toward the heavens, discover a heavenly father who created us, who loves us, desires the best for us. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then um, our board's going to come, and they are going to serve you this morning, Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to put it in a space-age contraption for you. You'll see it when you get there, and I'll tell you what to do after you get it. But even as we get ready, don't be afraid to look up in the sky and remember that Jesus came a long way so that we could experience life. Are you excited and expecting the celebration of it once again? And have you done what you need to do to prepare to experience it? the way you were created to experience it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and we think about all the things that are associated with this time of year. The toys, the stories, the memories, the moments, the people, the places, the music, the decorations, all of that becomes a part of our celebration. And at the same time, we remember 
that you came for a reason, and the reason mattered. The reason's important. And John was right. When you show up, <laughs> everything changes. As God this day, as an act of worship, we desire to worship you through the Lord's Supper, communion, remembering what you ask us to do, why you ask us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.
to clarify, this is not what they used at the Last Supper. But as I said, Jesus' instructions were to do this and remember. And so he took the Passover meal and he changed it. He just changed it. So if you would take that top piece where the bread is and peel that back so you can get to the bread. And remember, Jesus in the Passover meal took the bread and all of a sudden he says something that they didn't expect him to say. This is my body, which is broken for you. He told him, as often as you do this, remember. And we've been remembering ever since. Buzz Aldrin did. As an act of worship on the moon. And when you think about Christmas... bread of life was born into a town Bethlehem which means the house of bread it is so important to know that the bread was delivered for you and so once again the invitation is still the same take and eat and remember Scripture says he took the cup. In parentheses, it could have said behind it, in front of the very confused disciples. Because they had no idea what he was talking about. And he took the cup and he blessed it. Just peel back the top of that cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. They had no concept what that was going to mean. See, they knew what a blood sacrifice was. They knew what animal sacrifices were. They, they were used to that. But what Jesus was telling them, what they were beginning to hear, is that I'm getting ready to have my body broken. I'm going to shed my blood so that you can have life. <laughs> I, I wonder what it was like in that moment when God looked at the world and decided it was time to step in to time and space to do so in human form. I mean, he looked down from heaven and he looked at you. Looked at you. And decided that you were worth it. And the only way that he could bridge that gap so that you could have a way back to him 
is to wrap his love, his son, and send his son into the world, into the arms of a teenage girl and a very frightened young father. He said, take care of him. Watch over him. That first Christmas gift. They don't come any more special than that. And he did it because you're worth it. You, you're worth it. So Jesus was willing to be a baby that was born to die. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. You can't have Easter and you can't have resurrection if you don't have a baby in a manger. It all fits together. Christmas gives us hope. Easter makes us heroes. And both are essential. And so Jesus said, take and drink and remember. The Bible says that when they were done, they went out into an evening that next to Christmas would ripple through their lives forever. So here we are again, standing and poised at the beginning of a Christmas celebration with the opportunity to allow this Christmas celebration to ripple through your life in a way that it never has before. And as we celebrate this day, it's how we start. It's how we begin. Would you bow your heads and hearts? Let's pray. God, we're here. And Christmas is coming. We celebrate your birth with a sense of awe and majesty. It's nothing short of miraculous. We hear the stories, and those moments are vivid in our minds. And when we think about the bigness of what it meant, what happened, why you chose us, it drives us to our knees and overwhelms us. It spins our life into perspective. It allows us to look toward heaven with hope, to look to the stars and dream, be willing to explore and take the adventure that only you could call us to. Or there are those who have never accepted Jesus as Savior. This would be a great way to start their Christmas season. If they're here with us, I pray before they would leave, they would just drop us a note, a given kiosk, and say, hey, I want to accept Jesus. If they're watching online, I pray that even now they would just send us an email to the email address that's there on the screen. Say, I want to invite Christ Christmas into my heart. Give us a chance to share why that Christ Christmas grew into that man who was willing to die on a cross so that we could have life when he came back and defeated death. Boy, for others in this room, what we really need is we need to hear the message of John. The one that he was willing to share. 
that within us there needs to be a generosity that just springs hard knowing how much we've been blessed. That there needs to be within us an integrity that marks our life of us trying to do the right thing and the best thing. There's a need for us to consistently put it into practice. Because if we don't do those things, we lose the impact of the arrival of the Messiah. So remind us of that as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name.